Hello everyone, welcome to Perspectives, our new community endeavour to showcase the diversity of thinking and approaches to scholarship and practice within the School of History and Cultures. I'm Hannah Cornwell, I'm the school's EDI lead, and today I have two members from Ironbridge International Institute for Cultural Heritage, John and Prudencia. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. John, tell us a little bit about the Institute and yourself, of course. My name is John Carmen. My official title is Senior Lecturer in Heritage Valuation. And one thing I always say is once I find out what heritage valuation is all about, I'll stop doing what I do and go and do something else. So I'm still learning about heritage. We focus very much upon, as you'll guess, cultural heritage. Our interest is very much in cultural heritage as a modern phenomenon. Now, we're not interested in, in the past as such, but how the past is used in the present. And the past here is used in a very, very broad, all-encompassing sense to include not only things like museums and heritage sites that are officially recognised, but also the role of institutions that manage heritage, the practices of people who are engaged with heritage, and the different sorts of heritage that are also one way or another used, including, this is where Prudencia's work in particular comes in, I think, those aspects of culture which are not necessarily officially classed as heritage, but are nonetheless part of people's sense of who they are and the heritage they possess. We deal exclusively with postgraduate students. We have a reasonable number of students at the master's level studying international heritage management, which is, guess what, about how you manage heritage, and world heritage studies, which is about how you manage world heritage sites, the particular UNESCO designation. We also have a very large number of PhD students, of whom I'm pleased to say Prudencia is one, and our students come from all over the globe. So I would like to claim that we are reasonably inclusive, but I'm prepared to be challenged on that, in particular from China and East Asia, but also from all across Europe. We have students from North America and Africa as well, not so much from South America, but we do have the odd student that comes to us from that part of the world as well. So we're reasonably global in what we try to do. And because heritage is a global phenomenon, everybody in the world has something they call heritage, whatever it is. Again, our diversity, we claim at least, is reasonably wide. My particular interests devolve in trying to understand the kind of importance we give to heritage, why we think certain things are important and worth preserving, and how that plays out in practice, who does it, who says it should be done, that sort of thing. And when I'm not doing that, because that does entail quite a lot of sitting around in libraries, which can get a bit boring, I have a project with my partner where we go out into rather empty pieces of real estate across the world to look at them as places where people came together in large numbers to slaughter each other in the past. So it's a project on historic battlefields as particular kinds of places. And that gets us involved in how they're remembered or, as it were, not remembered, who remembers, what they remember, all that kind of thing. And that's how I get my fresh air, which is really important in doing all of this. And the particular interest I have in this project, sorry to take up all the time on this, is because, among other things, I'm the editor of a journal called Archaeologies. I'm an archaeologist by training and by conviction. Archaeologies is the journal of the World Archaeological Congress which was founded in 1986. It broke away from the International Union of Pre- and Proto-Historic Societies in a dispute over the representation of South Africa at that particular conference. Those that 
ended up organizing the World Archaeological Congress, were very keen at that point to exclude scholars from South Africa because of the embargo that was being placed on South Africans because of the apartheid regime then in place, and dedicated itself to working with disadvantaged communities as they engage with various sorts of scholars, in particularly archaeologists and anthropologists, and how such people deal with the, the culture that is actually somebody else's but which they claim the right to talk about. And archaeology's attempts to match what the intentions of BRAC are in that regard and to encourage an inclusive and diverse community of archaeologists across the globe. So that's why I'm here. Thank you very much, John. Prudencia, welcome. Tell us about yourself. Well, thank you for inviting me. I'm a third year PhD student in John's department, Ironbridge International Institute for Cultural Heritage. I'm a mature student. As you could see, I don't look 20, not, not anymore. <laughs> and John is my supervisor. I have a background in teaching. I'm a biology and combined science teacher by first profession. In fact, I used to teach in the School of Psychology many years ago. So it's quite interesting coming back to Birmingham as a student again. But I also have a background in psychology, in counselling and in training. I feel I've sort of come to heritage through the back door because it wasn't my first I was trying to get into anthropology because I think my research probably would have fitted more in anthropology and a friend of mine said actually your research would fit very well in heritage here is John Carman's email address and telephone number get in touch with him he's very responsive I did and he was very responsive. And so here I am in IIICH. I'm Jamaican by birth, although I've lived here for most of my life, but I was actually born in Jamaica. And my research is looking at that part of heritage that is known as intangible cultural heritage. It's not the bricks and mortar, it's not the bits of pots or the monuments. Intangible cultural heritage it's what people do that they see as heritage, that makes them who they are, just as much as the bricks and mortar is a representation of who people are. So the things they do on a day-to-day -day basis and how they see that reflected as part of their identity. And so I'm actually looking at the death customs and practices of Jamaicans, and I'm looking at those because there were a number of people who thought those customs and practices were changing to such an extent that we were losing part of our heritage. So I'm looking at how those customs and practices are continued in Jamaica and how they're being continued in the UK and making a comparison between the two. That's basically the essence of my research. I have completed the data collecting part of my research, which was interviewing and observation, interviewing individuals and observing practices here. And also I spent six months in Jamaica doing the same thing, basically interviewing and looking at death customs and practices. It's a really interesting project to be pursuing at the moment with the intervention of COVID because death customs and practices are one of the areas that have been massively affected. I have now got an additional 
part to my research, which is to look at customs and practices up to COVID and post-COVID. I imagine trying to collect contemporary data on this as well is quite difficult. Yes. It must be fascinating and very insightful to track how this is having an impact on those. In some senses, it's probably the ideal thing to be doing at the moment, but it does add a tad more work than I had originally envisaged. Yeah, so keeping you very busy. But at that point, yes, this is, as you say, either an ideal thing to be looking at now or fact highlighting how important looking at these sort of things are, particularly when we have a crisis like we do have, where it's impacting people's lives in such a way, but indeed seeing how it impacts these sort of practices and rituals that are associated with someone's culture or heritage. I suppose this takes me on to something that John raised, but also presents something that you said about originally being interested or going down the route of anthropology versus heritage. And John, you mentioned that there is aspects of what you look at that as culture that is not classed as heritage. And I suppose I'm trying to sort of unpick this nexus of ideas and concepts and terms about how we talk about culture, heritage. And John, you also mentioned about how do we study something that is someone else's culture and what rights do we have to, you know, claim to study that? I realize that's a very big question to ask you both, but I just wondered your thoughts. How do we st study heritage and culture, whether it is a culture we belong to or a culture that we don't? And how do we approach that from a point of view of inclusivity? There was a growing recognition through the 1980s and into the 1990s that um, disciplines like anthropology and archaeology were dealing with what was effectively other people's cultures, and particularly um, the relegation of indigenous cultures to the status of prehistory. So if you were studying what was going on in Australia prior to European arrival, then it was regarded as being prehistory. And despite the fact that there may have been a very long tradition of the same things being done and the same kind of items being made and, and used by the people of Australia, um, there was still this idea that somehow they were prehistoric and classed as such. But of course, you were dealing with a living, breathing, active population, which had also suffered quite terribly from European incursion. And that also applies, of course, to Native Americans in both North and South America and peoples elsewhere in the, in the world. Where Europeans came in, they definitely brought new diseases which didn't have a, a good effect on the populations. And in some cases, there was active uh, attempts at extermination, or at least at, at, at removal of such populations. There was, on the one side, this academic interest in the kinds of things that these people did and how they did it and how they, how they worked and how these communities and societies functioned. But that was detached from any concern for the living representatives of those cultures. At the same time, as there was a growing resentment amongst those populations at the way they were being treated, in particular as the world developed ideas such as human rights and suddenly became concerned for acts of genocide and all that kind of thing, and suddenly realized that these are the people who have actually been suffered some of these things and nobody seemed to be taking too much notice. And these factors sort of came together to encourage, particularly in the case of archaeology, which is my discipline, archaeologists thinking about, okay, sort of, you know, here we are dealing with, as it were, Native American artifacts and remains from the past, but not engaging with the people to whom these things belong. And so there was a growing 
body of opinion that maybe we needed to start engaging with these communities and to work more closely with them and indeed to start asking them for permission in order to have access to this kind of material and that has had some consequences the north american graves uh, repatriation act for example which means that if you encounter native american material in a grave context then basically it has to be returned to the community that can claim it there are disputes about who has the right to claim and under what circumstances but nonetheless the general principle is is there and recognized and an increasing number of archaeologists across the globe who are engaging with people of other cultures and making sure that they are not just consulted although it's very often how it started in terms of what people were doing but also more, much more actively involved and across the world as well a drive to recruit people from Aboriginal or Indigenous cultures to become archaeologists themselves. And so when they go back, they go and study, as it were, their own people from that particular disciplinary perspective and have the authority to do so, not only because they are a trained and experienced archaeologist or anthropologist, but also because they are a member of that community themselves and that therefore they can, they can see it for, as it were from two, from two sides. And that, I think, has been a very positive kind of thing. And the World Archaeological Congress, which I'm involved with, their four yearly congresses always involve not only professional and amateur archaeologists from across the globe, but also representatives of indigenous and other communities that are involved in archaeological work, which makes them really, really interesting conferences because you go and take part in other people's ritual activities, which otherwise you might not get the chance to, to do, which it can be not only very interesting, but also very moving sometimes. And that, that sounds a bit, you know, sort of Westerner coming and looking at the nice exoticism. But it does at least give the communities the chance to talk to us about what we're doing and to challenge directly what we're doing, which is the really important. I was going to say, that sounds like the really important thing and trying to move an academic discipline away from being Eurocentric, centred on ideas of Western and inverted commas, culture, yeah. that Western culture really exists. But yes, I think that idea of actually having conversations with people who are still part of that culture and heritage makes infinite sense surely i think it needs to go beyond having conversations although yes yes it's that as well it's also giving them the authority to determine what can and cannot be done with the material that is after all theirs finding mechanisms by which they can retain control over their mm. own culture as a result of that rather than it being something that Westerners come in and, and talk to each other. I had a colleague in Cambridge who worked a lot with people in Papua New Guinea, I think it was, and he used to say, when they talked about anthropologists, they used to get very fed up with these people coming in and studying them. Basically, it's, it's white men writing letters. <laughs> that's it. <laughs> no, thank you. And that's a really important point. It's giving the authority and power to people who have a right to determine what happens with culture and heritage. Prudencia, I think you might have had a point also to add to the discussion. Yes. It is interesting, or it was interesting for me coming into heritage when where I wanted to go was anthropology, to see that there is a part of heritage that deals with anthropology. I really didn't know much about heritage before I came into the department. And the bit John talked about that wasn't really heritage or wasn't really seen as heritage is the intangible cultural heritage, the customs and practices of regular people going about their regular business. Not all cultures see heritage as bricks and mortar. For some cultures, 
what they do on a daily basis, their rituals, their rites of passages, they form the culture, the heritage of those communities, of those societies. There are two types of heritages. There's tangible cultural heritage and intangible cultural heritage. Because these definitions were designed and developed in the West, and the West has lots of tangible cultural heritage, some of the Western countries, including Britain, that have lots of tangible cultural heritage, did not sign, and correct me if, if I get the term of this wrong, John, the treaty for intangible cultural heritage. Is it a treaty? Yeah. It's, it's, so it's, Britain it's, it's, does it's not officially recognise intangible cultural heritage and the need to preserve it in and to have management systems for it in the way it does tangible cultural heritage. And so my research falls into that part of the UNESCO definition of intangible cultural heritage. Jamaica doesn't have much in the way of tangible cultural heritage. And what it does have, most of it relates to slavery. And when you're looking at a nation, a people, what we're wanting to do, and I'm saying we because I am Jamaican, is to preserve what makes us us outside of the bricks and mortar. The problem, as John said with anthropologists, was that they were, well, white men, but they were also white women who would go off, Margaret Mead would go off and, and go into communities to observe them and then make sense of what they were observing. And they didn't always get it right because you go with your own view of how life is you see things, you make an assumption about what those things mean, you come back and you write about it to other people who also don't understand and didn't experience it. And I think we're still living, as black people, we're still living with that legacy. You know, we're still living with the legacy of what white people thought we were doing, yeah? <laughs> what white anthropologists thought we were doing when they observed what we were doing. So I think it is absolutely vital for indigenous people, for people of their own communities to be their own anthropologists. And I think the issue really was a lot of intangible cultural heritage is not written down. And so my interest is it just to go in some way to recording what our practices mean for us. And in my research, it is really interesting that both here and in Jamaica, I asked the question, what can we do to preserve the heritage? Because people are concerned that we're losing. I think one person in Jamaica suggested it might be a good idea to write it down. Significantly more in the UK said write it down. And I think it's because in the UK, there is more of an erosion of the culture. So people are not even aware anymore of some of the practices, whereas in Jamaica, they're more aware of them. So they actually don't see any need to write them down. And I think, again, this is part of cultures where writing has not been a predominant, recording in writing has not been predominant way of transmitting information. So much of it has been what the Rastafari's call the liberty, how you live it. And that's how it's transferred, transmitted orally and or just in the doing of it, the experiential learning. So my research is aiming to kind of put some of that right. And it may, it may not save some of the practices, but they will be there for at least later generations. And even just interviewing people, 
just even asking the questions, do you know what these customs and practices are? Do you know what they mean? Do you think we are losing them? That in itself has made people think, oh, well, A, I didn't know that. And there were, th there were things I didn't know. This has been an, an amazing journey for me because having lived in England for so long, there were parts of my own heritage that I wasn't aware of. So I, I feel that in terms of my research, I am gaining, but I am also giving. I'm just going to go on to something else in terms of the inclusivity. Researching your own community is so much easier than researching someone else's community because you are already included. You are already a part of that community. There are things that you will access that someone coming into that community will not access. But even within that, because I arrived in Jamaica with an English accent, I, I had to work at re regaining the Patois in order to gain access to some people. So inclusivity works on so many different levels when you're looking at people and heritage and the way we behave, why we do things and what we want to preserve. Does that make sense? Yeah. It makes complete sense. I thought that was such an eloquent way of putting it. I'm curious to know when, through the research you've been doing and particularly talking to people within the UK, have you had a sense of reaction from them about learning about things that they've lost from their culture? Absolutely. I mean, the research, I try to interview people from different ages. So I had 18 to 30, 31 to 49, and then all the way up to 95. The oldest person I interviewed was 98 years old. There were young people in the 18 to 30 brackets who really surprised me by the amount they knew. Well, one person in, in particular, but some didn't know anything, hardly anything they knew of funerals and burials and cremations. But there were so many other rituals and customs and practices that they knew nothing of. And they were some of the ones that were entreating me to write them down. Because if you don't write them down, how are we going to know? Because our parents and grandparents assume that somehow we're going to know these things. And also in Jamaica, the, as you would expect, some of the younger ones didn't know some of the customs and practices that the older ones talked about. There is a process of acculturation that goes on from the data that I've looked at, from the conversations I've had with people. There are some things they may not want to keep once they realize where they came from. So some of our practices are related to slavery. And when some people found out about that, they were like, oh, well, why are we holding on to those? So when you start looking at what to keep and what to let go, not everyone wants to hold on to everything. And I think there's a part of me that went into the research thinking, oh, we really need to hold on to our heritage. These things form part of our heritage. But then when you start to look at, well, where did this heritage come from? It takes on different shades. I am now looking at the data in more detail and trying to draw some conclusions. I am not the person I was when I started this research. <laughs> at all I am not that person I'm not so gung-ho that we should we should hold on to all of it I am a lot more discerning and what I'm hoping will come out of this will be a body of work that gives people more information for them to be able to make their own minds up so I'm presenting 
the facts as I found them. Obviously, I have to say where I sit within all of this, but also because so much of what we do is written down, this will be one step towards doing that. Just thinking what you said about your own personal experience and what you've learned through it and about being discerning about what to, to keep and maybe what not to keep. It reminded me of what John said at the beginning about heritage being a modern phenomenon or about it being sort of the past and the present. It's not mm-hmm. a, the past for the past sake, but what does it mean in the here and now? I mean, I think one of the things that came across very nicely from what Prudencia was just talking was the way in which things are categorised. That basically, the whole sort of heritage process is one of categorisation. There are those things that are heritage and there are those things that are, for some reason are not heritage, although they may share all sorts of common characteristics. It's just that nobody sort of put them on a list somewhere. Um, the distinction between tangible and intangible heritage, which Prudencia sort of outlined very nicely, is a creation of that categorization process. And basically, it's more to do with legal accident, actually, than it is to do with anything real. It was just the recognition that when UNESCO were putting together their World Heritage List, which came out of one of these conventions, these treaties that countries sign, it was eventually was realized that all that was going on there because of the way they defined what constituted heritage was big, spectacular buildings. And what about all those people for whom stories and songs and various sorts of practice and performance are their heritage? Where's that fitting? And it was realized that the only way to incorporate that within the World Heritage Convention as it was drafted would be to unwrite the whole thing, cancel it, rewrite it and then persuade all the countries who signed up initially to sign up again, which would take decades. I mean, it took decades to put the thing together in the first place. It would take just as long or even longer to revise it. So they came up with the alternative plan of having one that would sit parallel to the World Heritage Convention, the Intangible Heritage Convention, which again has a definition of what constitutes intangible heritage across the world. Interestingly, it does not include the kind of thing that Prudencia is looking at. There's a whole raft of things that are not listed in the Intangible Heritage Convention as being the sort of thing that can be listed in the Intangible Heritage Convention. And accidentally, what's also interesting is that certain things have crept in there because they fall within the definition that were never intended. Food cultures, for example, have crept in as part of this process. That was never the intention of the drafters, but because of the way they drafted it, they can be included. So it's really sort of interesting to see how this process of categorization takes place. And that's, in a sense, is the, is the problem with official heritage. And one of the things that I find interesting is looking to see the way that heritage is dealt with differently in different parts of the globe. So, I mean, I'm an archaeologist, so I'm interested particularly in archaeological heritage, which does tend to be tangible, but I also have an interest in intangible heritage precisely because it is a broad sort of heritage category and it includes things that are not otherwise listed anywhere as being officially heritage. So official designations of heritage are really quite interesting to look at and see how they play out in different parts of the world. And the frightening thing is that so much is so similar across the world in terms of the way heritage is thought about and treated, despite the fact that the world is an incredibly diverse place. And the sorts of things that are classed as heritage in China or Cambodia, as compared to what's classed as heritage in Europe or North America or South America or parts of Africa, are completely different from one another. And yet, we proceed to deal with these things in a very similar way. Basically, we put them on a list, we say how important they are, and there's a very limited list of the sorts of importances that things can have. And then we set about various ways of preserving them, whatever that might involve. 
And that's pretty much it. Given the enormity of diversity of the, the world's population, I think it's 7 billion people now. I forgot to count the number of countries in the world, but it's well over 200. And within those countries, you get broad diversity as well. Plus, of course, all the different communities who, one way or another, are deemed to be separate from other communities with whom they are they're occupying the same space. All that diversity gets lost somewhere in the sort of heritage process. And I find that really, really interesting, also quite frightening in the way that it does. And I, that's one of the values of the kind of work that Prudencia has carried out, and also other, other PhD students of, of ours, is in identifying aspects of heritage that are not officially recognised as such but somehow need to be taken into account as being as much heritage as anything else that is out there that's classed as heritage. So that's why I say I don't really understand what heritage is. One day we'll find out and it'll be everything and then we can stop and do something else. <laughs> that's a really good point, John, about who gets to define what heritage is, what's encompassed within that and how that is something that needs to be looked at and problematized in relation to inclusivity and whose who's heritage counts and what counts as heritage. I, I realise that we are coming to the end of our time. I'd, I'd like to ask you both if there's sort of anything you'd like to say in way of summary, a takeaway point for, for those listening about heritage, culture and inclusivity that you'd like to, to end with. My last point would be, in a sense, in defence of the field of heritage, if you like. It is not just about looking at things. For me, and I think for a lot of people involved in the heritage process, studying heritage, it isn't just about studying a phenomenon. It's about being much more active in the world. It is about um, understanding how people make sense of themselves. And heritage is, is one of the tools, if not a primary tool, in doing so, in order that the world can be made into a better place. Um, how we define what a better place is is itself a whole huge question and one on which we could talk and disagree probably for hours, uh, if not years. But that's primarily what this field, it seems to me, is about. It's about looking at the world, trying to understand it, and then trying to do something to make it a better place, particularly for those who, one way or another, are excluded from the resources that are otherwise available to all of us. So it's not just about looking at things, it's about doing something out there as well. This is not the conversation I thought we were going to have, but it's been a good one. It's yeah. been an interesting one. I didn't think I was going to be spending so much time talking about my research. I thought I was going to be talking more about whether or not I felt included as a student at Birmingham University and looking at the differences between when I was there as a lecturer how many years ago and coming back as a student now and whether or not I feel more included. And that's a, an excellent point and one when you were introducing yourself I thought I must ask and then I heard about your research you said so many interesting things about the discipline that I'm afraid I, I, I let that question get away so if you'd like to say anything about your different experiences in terms of inclusion as a staff and student, that would be also really helpful for people to hear a little bit about. Firstly, let me say, I feel more included now than I did then. So I think the university has done something. And when I feel included at Birmingham is when, it, so the definition of inclusivity for me, my own, for me, it's respect for me as an individual. Yeah? And that I am seen as worthy of what everyone else has 
and that, that efforts will be made to assist me to achieve my potential. So if those three things are in place, then I feel included. I would say maybe 70% of the time in Birmingham University, those things happen, but there are occasions when they don't. And as I said, I'm, I'm a mature student. I have done training across education and social care and also within university settings. I think although Birmingham prides itself on being a supportive university and a diverse university, it cannot afford to sit back on its laurels yet. It still has work to do. And that work has to happen at all levels. And I think when we get to a point where I think I can come in and feel that these three things are addressed, maybe when the people who run Birmingham are responsible for what goes on there and set the standard, when they're able to put themselves in someone else's shoes, not tick the boxes that says diversity, we've done this, we've done that, we've done the other, but when they're able, as a human being, to say, would I want to be treated like that? And when everyone is doing that and saying, is that behaviour that I would find acceptable for me? And therefore, if I don't find it acceptable for me, I will not do it to someone else. Then I think Birmingham can give itself a big tick and go, we're there. But I don't think we're there yet. No, we're not. And I think that's a really important message to stress. Thank you so much for ensuring that we actually did include this in today's discussion. Thank you so much, Prudencia. Thank you so much, John. I think those are really powerful statements to be carrying forward for future conversations that we have on this podcast. Thank you very much indeed. Take care and speak to you soon.